I, I wanted to read, read you something that Genevieve read to me this week that I thought was um, amusing and that gives us some insight into today's portion. Now, consider these newly discovered laws of the universe. The law of biomechanics. The severity of any itch is inversely proportional to the reach. Law of coffee. As soon as you sit down to a cup of hot coffee, your boss will ask you to do something which will last until the coffee is cold. Law of dirty rugs or carpets. The chances of an open face jelly sandwich of landing face down on a floor covering are directly correlated to the newness and cost of the carpet or rug. Law of mechanical repair. After your hands become coated with grease, your nose will begin to itch. <laughs> Have any of you experienced that? <laughs> I've experienced that. Like, oh no, my nose is itchy and my hands are covered in grease. <laughs> Law of the result. When you try to prove to someone that a machine won't work, it will. Law of the telephone. When you dial a wrong number, you never get a busy signal. Law of the workshop. Any tool, when dropped, will roll to the least accessible corner. Variation law. If you change traffic lanes, the one you were in will start to move faster than the one you are now in. Living in Calgary and commuting on the Deerfoot every day, I can say that that is true. Warm water theorem. When the body is fully immersed in water, the telephone will ring. So I, uh, I, think, I think there's a, there's a, there's a correlative law in this week's parasha. When you go down to Egypt, Pharaoh will think your wife is gorgeous and try to take her from you. We, uh, we, we read of Avram's plight where he was, he was scared that it would happen. And sure enough, what he feared came upon him. He went down to Egypt and, and uh, that's what exactly what happened. And thankfully they, they escaped out of there um, with the help of God in, in one piece. And uh, with a lot of wealth to boot actually. Kind of an amusing story. Um, I, I'd like to, to look at this parsha on a personal level. Uh, Avram, you know, Abram, as he was called then, is our, he's like our forefather in the faith. We talked about how all of us are descended from Noah, unless we're aliens, right? And similarly, like, Abram is like our great, great, great grandpa in the faith. He's like someone that we can really look up to, that we can feel a, a warm connection with. And when I look at his life, I see things that have played out in his life that have played out in my life. I think that can be true of each of us. The, the God who spoke to Abraham, the God who led him through his life and took care of him, he's the God who does the same thing for us. So uh, I'd like to talk today about, about the concept of journey. Like, every one of us in this room are on a journey. Every, everyone that you encounter is on a journey. Some people maybe have hit the ditch in their journey and it doesn't look like they're going anywhere. Maybe some people have stalled out and they're on the side of the road. You know, maybe some people like lost the map and are going in the wrong direction on their journey. I don't know. But, but we're all on a journey. And when, when, when we look at people even, let's say that we're in a conversation with someone, when you look at that person as, a, as being someone who's on a journey, it all of a sudden adds this layer of meaning to, uh, to that person and to your conversation with them. So uh, let's look at Auburn's journey. The very first thing that this, this parsha, this passage opens with, is it says this. <coughs> Excuse me, that's not what it said. Um, Yahweh said to Abram. So we learn something right there. We have a God who talks to people. He's not a God who's like way out there and who is totally non-communicative, like I feel sometimes in the morning. He is a God who talks to people. And if people are listening, maybe they can hear him. So let's tune in and see what he's saying to, uh, to our forefather in the faith. He says, okay, get out of here, Abram. It's time to like, leave your country. Um, leave your family behind. I want to take you somewhere. And I'll show you where we're going when we get there. Is essentially what he says. Isn't that exciting? Like, that is the start of an adventure if I, ever I heard one. And then I'm sure he went and he told this to his wife, Sarai, and Sarai probably flipped out. I mean, there goes their social life, there goes their security. Just same thing with Noah's wife, right? Like, everything changes because of her husband's crazy idea. And she must have been an amazing woman because she trusted him. She trusted his spiritual sensitivity and, and, and they made a go of it together. <laughs> 
this I, I really see a similarity here with Yeshua's call. Like our Savior calls us to to go after Him, to walk closely with Him, to to be His disciple, right? And uh, I think of this passage in Luke where He said, "If if we prioritize anything or anybody over Him, then it's not a go. We can't be His disciple." Like He requires preeminence in our lives, in our priorities, in our schedules. In fact, sometimes we will have such an intense love for Him, such a devotion to what He's called us to, that. You know, our love for Him, our, 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 like the, our relationship with other people compared to our love for Him is going to look like hatred or something. You know, that, that, that's what he said. Maybe some of Abram's family members that he left behind in Haran, maybe they didn't feel so great about that. You know, but it was his love for God that took him where God was calling him to be. Um, who here knows the word homeostasis? What is it? Homeostasis. Yes, it's like our human tendency to just sit there and not do anything, to be static, as, as opposed to dynamic, right? It's something that we all fight at different times in our lives. And uh, when we encounter the living creator of the universe, he like kind of breaks us out of our homeostasis. Either that or we get left behind, okay? <laughs> it's, it's like, the, on a medical level, homeostasis is actually your friend. It's what keeps all of your organs and like functioning, keeps your body temperature stable. It's a stabilizing factor, right? But when it, when it reaches a psychological level, then uh, it becomes less than healthy. <laughs> so, here, here's something like right off the bat that I get out of this passage. There are times in our lives where if we want to follow God, we're going to have to break out of the ruts, we're going to have to leave the ordinary behind, and we're going to have to enter into a state of motion. Like we're going to have to go. You'll see that, in, for instance, in the Gospels, where, where Yeshua, where our Savior walks through somebody's life. Let's say you're Matthew the tax collector, and you just sold out on your people. You're making a lot of big bucks from your tax collecting job because you're ripping everybody off and charging too much. And all of a sudden, this famous rabbi that you heard about walks past your tax booth, and he looks at you, and he makes eye contact with you, and he says, come follow me. And you're shocked. Because everybody hates you, especially the rabbis. But this rabbi just sees something in your heart, and he wants you. And right there, you have the choice to succumb to your homeostasis, and just stay where you are, and go about business as usual. Or you can leave it behind, and you can follow him into that adventure, into the unknown. And that's what happened to Avram. He just got this call, and it was time to go. Yeshua, what, what does he do? He begins by saying, come, right? Come and spend quality time with me. Come and let me change you. Come and sit at my feet and learn from me. And then eventually he says, go. Go into the world. Go make disciples. Go in the mission that I've given you to, to rede- help redeem humanity, to bring healing, hey? But either way, these are active terms. Come is an active term. Go is an active term. <laughs> yeah. So this is like, this is how the narrative of our forefather in the faith begins. It's no wonder Jewish people are so hyper, historically speaking, hey? I mean, they're always the movers and the shakers. They're always, you know what I mean? Like, well, now you know why. It must be, it must be in their genes or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on, at the last chapter of this parasha, we see that God, like, speaks to Abraham on a very personal level, and he says, Abraham, I'm giving you a new name. And you're, I'm giving your wife a new name, too. Um, Abram's name before that was Avram, exalted father. And God said, you are going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And so I'm giving you the name Avraham, father of a multitude. And what can we learn from that on a personal level about how he interacts with us? You know, like when we answer his call and we start going after him and we engage in that relationship, he's going to start changing you. Like you're going to enter into that transformative process. And it's going to reach the point where he's going to say, I'm giving you a new name. I'm not talking about like legally changing your name or whatever, right? Although I know people who have done that. Ha 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 ha. I'm talking like he's giving you like who you most truly are. He sees who you most deeply are. <laughs> and it's almost like he gives you a pet name to express that. And let me ask you, do you think there could be some correlation there? In the first chapter, Abram leaves his family behind. He leaves like where he grew up, essentially. And at the last chapter, he receives his new name. He receives his true identity. Do you think there could be something there? Do you think... Okay, how many of you have 
had people in your life who didn't want you to change, who wanted you to stay the same. Maybe, maybe some people in your life have been stalled on the side of the highway in their journey, or they hit the ditch big time, and uh, they didn't want anyone else to go anywhere either. Have you ever encountered someone like that? You know, it's, like, it's almost like you, you, it's, it's possible to just sell out who you are and sell out your originality, your authenticity for just fitting into the mold, for being, quote, normal, right? The problem is when we, when we, when we buy into that, we want to try and make everyone else normal too. In other words, just like us, just like the system. And that, that's no fun. That's no fun for anybody, right? And so I kind of wonder what Abram's family was like. Maybe there was a reason God said, Abram, you're going to have to put some distance between yourself and some of your family members. Yeah, I, what, what can we learn from this on our journey? When we follow him, he, he gives us that identity, who, who he sees us to be. And sometimes there may result in some distance between you and some of your people from your past doesn't mean you don't love them or keep in touch with them, but you have to be who He's making you to be. You have to let Him give you your true name. This is something I, I see from this parsha. Another thing I love it from this parsha is, God said, I'm going to bless you. Why did He say He was going to bless Abram? So He could have like a little bless me club and you know sit there and count His money, uh, stuff like that. It's in chapter 12. Why did He say, I am going to bless you? To be a blessing. He said, I'm going to bless you and you are going to be a blessing. Don't you love like Like from the very start, the whole point of this thing was missional. It was outward focused. It's, I'm going to bless you so you can bless the people around you. So your descendants, I'm totally paraphrasing now, but so your descendants, specifically the Messiah, can be a blessing to the world. Like that was the mission. That is, that is the mission that we are a part of today. He also said, I'm going to make your name great. In other words, I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to make you popular. I'm going to make you a celebrity. Have you ever thought of Abraham as being a celebrity, as being popular? The whole concept of making your, great, your name great, it could imply that. What I get out of that for each one of us is, to the degree that God gives you influence, to the degree that God gives you some, I don't know, makes your name great, whatever that might look like in your life, He's doing that because you have been called by His name. You are one of His representatives on the earth. And he does that, not so that you can, again, not so you can be like, oh yeah, you know. It's so that you can point to him, so you can bring fame to him, so that you can use your influence to bring people closer to their creator. You know, to express his love, to bring healing, uh, stuff like that. That, that. That's what I get out of that whole concept. Um, moving on in his journey, in chapter 15, 15 verse 7. He says something that we hear echoes of a book later in the book of Exodus. In 15 verse 7 he says, I am Yahweh who brought you out, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I'm the one who brought you out. Interestingly enough, this is how the Decalogue opens. This is how the Ten Commandments, that, that like section of communication opens in, in Exodus. He begins by saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let me ask you, could it be that that's who He is to you? Could it be that He is the one who has brought you out of something? And that's how you know He is real. That's where you really encountered Him. Maybe He brought you out of an unhealthy situation of some kind. Maybe He brought you out of depression. Maybe He brought you out of an addiction. Maybe He brought you out of, you name it, all the stuff that tries to kill us in this world and kill our hearts. Maybe He brought you out of some system where everybody just walks around with their eyes glazed over and they just do stuff because that's how they've always done it. He's saying, I am the one who brought you out. And that started all the way back with Abram. <laughs> okay, you know the term emergent? Emergent is kind of a charged term in the Christian world, right? It has a specific connotation. But just think about this for a second. On a neutral level, Abram was the first emergent in the Bible. Abram was emergent. He emerged out of the system. You know, Israel is an emergent people. They, they emerged out of Egypt to go to the land. <laughs> kind of playing with this word, right? So Abram was emergent. In that regard, we are emergent. And I'm using that term in a very neutral one, right? I'm not using it in what it some, the nuances that it sometimes has in, a, in the Christian world today. <laughs> okay, Here, here's another, here's another um, insight on our journeys. In 16 verse 8, we encounter someone else who's on a journey. Um, Hagar, um, Abram and Hagar have a baby. And Sarah is really upset by uh, 
some of the things that are happening in the situation. So she, um, she treats Hagar relatively abusively from what it looks like, and um, Hagar takes off. And then um, the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, he finds Hagar in this wilderness, like she's dehydrated, she's going to die, she doesn't have a clue where she is, and uh, this is what he says to her in, in, in 16 verse 8. He says, uh, Hagar, uh, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? That's, that's the question he asks. And you can tell, this is God, because God always asks questions. Eh? If God comes into your life and starts asking questions, you know it's Him, because He's always asking questions. And, you know, that is an excellent question to let Him ask each one of us. Where have you come from, and where are you going? Because, you know, it's, sometimes it's possible to focus on where we've come from and to forget about where we're going. Some people's lives are totally wrapped up on where they've come from, on what they left, on some situation in their past, and they don't have a clue where they're going, or they've never thought about it. And it's interesting how this is Hagar. And he goes on to say, uh, go back. In verse 9 he says, return to your mistress. Submit yourself to our authority. And I mean, that's not to say that, you know, you're supposed to go back to situations that are unhealthy. But I just, I see something here. I, I, I just see that, you know, it's important for each one of us to know where we're going in the journey. I, I, I've encountered people in the messianic, the messianic movement, and they know very well where they've come from. Quote, we have left the church. And that's their whole orientation. We have left the church. We don't do things like the church did. If the church had this structure, that's not how we do things. If the church had a pastor or some kind of leadership, that's not how we do things. If uh, the church had a service where this is what they do in the service, that's not how we do things. And uh, the reason is, quote, we have left the church. That's what we left behind. You know, for some people, that's as far as their growth goes. That is their, that is their orientation. And eventually, an orientation like that is going to cause people to crash. Because we don't only need to know where we've come from. We need to know where we're going. Yeah. So, that's a, that's a practical thing that I've observed in the Messianic movement. We can't just be running away. We need to be following His call. Um, the, last, the last observation about Avram's journey. This is something that I think Colin really challenged me in originally, actually. I remember a couple of years ago, um, when we were both still, like, on that single, and... Uh, Colin said, you know what, this verse has really been challenging me lately. It was like Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. This is uh, Abram's 99 here. So, I mean, he's been walking with the Almighty for a while, right? And this is, this is, what, uh, this is what, what God says to him. He says, I am El Shaddai, and God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That's how the NASB renders it. But the Hebrew there says, like, like tamim. And uh, what it means is, uh, like the word there for walking is, walk yourself. Like, make yourself walk. It has the idea of like, Abram, walk intentionally with me. Choose to do life with me. And that word there for blameless, I like how Art Scroll, an Orthodox Jewish transla- translator, renders it. They say, be wholehearted. And that's a very good translation. Like, choose to walk with me. Make yourself, like, do life with me and be wholehearted about it. That's kind of the idea. And I remember Colin, Colin, do you remember that? It was like, it was like four or five years ago when we were working in Alberta and we were just coming back and you said God really challenged you with that. And it hit me too. I was like, I don't want to just kind of like hit cruise control in my relationship with God. I don't want to just kind of like, I don't know, like just kind of go mindlessly in my spiritual life. I want to be wholehearted about it. I want to choose every day to engage, hey? And so, like, one thing for us was, you know, we were living in pretty close proximity to each other at the time as brothers. We started praying every morning, like getting up and praying together. And, uh, and then you too. Uh, right, Christopher? I think you were still working in Alberta. And then we were back in Saskatchewan. But that was, that was one practical way we started being wholehearted. We'd get up and we would pray the first thing. And I don't just mean like a little, a little preliminary prayer. I don't just mean like, you know, when you're so groggy you can't even think. I mean like we would really get into it. We would really cut loose. And that was, that was like an air, that was a way that he challenged us to be wholehearted. What's that going to look like for you? What is it going to look like for you to engage, to, to be wholehearted, to, to do every, every hour uh, with our Creator who's so close to us? Yeah, those are some questions to think about.
<laughs> um, moving on from there, I want to talk about some first mentions here. Like This is still really early on in the Bible, right? And there are quite a few things here that pop up for the first time. And some of them are rather fascinating. Let me ask you a, a pop quiz question. Who is the first person in the scriptures to be blessed? No, not Ishmael. Mm-mm. <laughs> yeah, Adam and Eve were blessed to be fruitful and multiply. The animals are some of the first people too. They got a blessing to reproduce exceedingly also. Yeah, those are in the very first chapters. And then moving on from there, we also see that in conjunction with the flood narrative, Yahweh gets blessed by Noah. Noah says, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. It's the first instance of like using this blessed be Him uh, formula in, in the language of prayer, hey? And... Uh, Okay, so we figured that one out. Now here's, here's the next question. Who's the first person in the scriptures to be praised? <laughs> it's, in this, it's in this week's parasha. It's in chapter 12. <coughs> It's, it's, it, yeah, that could be, but specifically it says that someone was praised. <laughs> it's in 12 verse, that's correct. The first person in the Holy Scriptures to be praised is Sarah, because she was gorgeous. It says, Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. That's exactly the like, worst case scenario that Abram was afraid would happen. Let me ask you, who, who, who here just... Well, I guess it says right there that it was Pharaoh's officials. But uh, I'm not going to zero in on that so much, but I want to zero in on the concept of praise. Because the, root, the word, root word in Hebrew for praise is something that's really relevant to how we praise God and also how we relate to each other sometimes. Uh, the Hebrew... Okay, can anyone tell me what the Hebrew word for praise is? Hallel, that is correct. We all know hallelujah, right? Praise ya. So halal is the Hebrew word for praise. Now the root of halal is halal. It's a verb. And do you know what it means? It means to shine with light. So the idea of praising has something to do with shining with light. Like glowing. Yeah. Let's, let's look a little farther into that. Oh. Okay, here's another example. I'll just give you another, uh, uh, another linguistic example. In Ezekiel, you remember... Uh, like the, the morning star. There's this spiritual entity that's called the morning star. Um, he wasn't a good guy, actually. And, uh, and uh, actually, I think some really old English Bibles translate that term as Lucifer. And the, the Hebrew there is Hillel. Everybody say Hillel. That's the word in Hebrew translated as Lucifer in English. Someone who's shining with light. A very illuminated being. Isn't that interesting? That's how Satan is described. Yeah. So anyway, let's go back to the concept of praise here. I'm just giving you, giving you some, uh, some context here. What, what, what I get out of this is, like, to praise someone is to make that person shine. To make their image shine. Their reputation shine. And you know what? When you praise someone, you know, when you speak well of someone, when you speak well of God and praise God, you start to shine too. Have you ever noticed that? Like, you can never really start praising and sit there with a gloomy face for too long. You have to start smiling if your praise is genuine. It's just true. And how many of you had a time in your life when someone gave you a genuine compliment? When someone praised something about you? Did you notice it was kind of hard to, like, keep from smiling? You just find this smile, like, welling up in you, you know? I've experienced that. That's the idea. Halal, praise. It has something to do with, like, shining. Yeah, so, you know, to the degree that you make someone else shine, you shine. So that's what Pharaoh's officials were doing, right? Sarah was a beautiful lady, but when they praised her up to Pharaoh, they really made her shine in his, in his mind, in his mind's eye. You know what I'm saying? And that's what we can do with God. Now here's the other cool thing. The first reference to praising isn't with reference to praising God, and it's not about, like, giving someone a compliment to their praise. It's about talking about someone behind their back in a good way. What, what, what does that tell us about praising the Almighty? Could it be that praise should be more than just us coming to synagogue on Shabbat morning and saying, we praise you. You know, we praise you for your attributes. Could it be that praise is like a practical lifestyle that we, what we do at work, that we do with our friends when we talk on the phone? You know, uh, something that we even practice on Facebook or whatever it is that you express yourself. 
Could it be that we can praise Him just in our normal conversations when we talk about Him? I guess we don't really talk about God behind His back. But you know what I'm saying? Like, just talking about God and how great He is, how wonderful He is, how, how merciful He is, like how generous He is, you know? Wouldn't I just, I just, I feel really like encouraged to grow in that area. Just like talking about God and praising Him to other people. Yeah. Making His image shine in this world. Uh, there's a correlative to this, this concept. Um, to the degree that we darken someone else's reputation or besmirch their image in society by talking about them in a negative way, to that degree we also darken our own faces. We besmirch our own names in society. You know, when we talk about something that's really dark or negative, often we find our souls being sucked to that level because our minds are going and we're taking other people's minds there, hey? That's the correlative. That's the scary part. I think maybe that's why, why Saul, why Paul wrote in uh, his letter to the faithful in Ephesus, chapter 5, verse 22, it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Maybe that's what he was getting at. Uh, there's something interesting here. In Genesis chapter 17, there's a Hebrew term that starts being used over and over and over. It's le'olam. Can we all say le'olam? What does le'olam mean? Forever. That is correct. Hannah, you're like our Hebrew, in-house Hebrew genius today. This is great. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I'd be like just sitting here left hanging if it wasn't for you. <laughs> just kidding. But um, yes, that is correct. Le'olam. And uh, in, I'll just read you a couple of passages where this term is used, okay? This is, this is the law of first mention. These are some of the first times this, this term is used. And it's going to give us an understanding. Genesis 17, verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for a breed olam, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Genesis 17, 19. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for a breed olam, for an everlasting covenant, and for his descendants after him. Genesis 17, verse 8. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an ahuzat olam, for an everlasting possession. Did you catch those usage of the term olam? Let me ask you, does it sound like this term means temporary, or only for a past dispensation, or perhaps only until Messiah comes? Did God say, I'm only going to be God to you and to your descendants until Messiah comes? Or for a specific dispensation? Contextually. Really. Tell me what you think. It kind of sounds like it's literally forever, hey? Here's something interesting. When the translators of the Hebrew Bible translated the term olam into Greek in the Septuagint, they used the term cosmos. Like, as long as the cosmos are in existence, as long as, as, long as there's this space-time continuum that we are a part of, that's what Olam means, hey? Okay, now let's look at another couple examples of this passage. We read in um, Exodus chapter 31, verse 16, that the, the, the weekly Sabbath on the seventh day, which is Saturday, all of our calendars can help us, help us notice that, it says that it is to be something celebrated by the, the people of Israel, Leolam, forever. Yeah, God said His Sabbath is just as forever as the land of Israel is, as His covenant with Abraham and His descendants. Um, also, we read in Leviticus chapter 16, in several verses, 29, 31, 34, that the people of Israel are commanded not to work on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, Leolam, forever. It's the same term. Uh, there are a couple other interesting usages of these terms. God is called El Olam, the eternal God, in a Genesis 2133. Also, eternal life in Hebrew is called Chaye Olam. Can you hear the Olam there, hey? I, 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 I'm pointing this out because this is like some stuff that some people have a really hard time with. If you want to just kind of like chuck the Old Testament and say it's done away with and it doesn't apply to our lives today, then you have to wrestle with these verses. You have to wrestle with the places where God said stuff like, the land of Israel is for Abraham's seed through Isaac, i.e. Israel, forever. The Shabbat is something to be celebrated by my people forever. Yom Kippur is a day to be taken seriously, a day not to be worked on forever. These are, these are verses to be wrestled with. And some people will say, well, you know, Leolam, it means temporary or 
for a past dispensation or until Messiah comes. But, you know, I'm, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Hey, here's, here's a cool quote from Yeshua about Abraham. Really relevant. Uh, John 8.39, Yeshua says, If you're Abraham's children, then uh, do the deeds of Abraham. So in other words, like if you claim to be descended from him in terms of your faith, then uh, you should be doing the same stuff as he did. Uh, the term for Abraham's children is B'nai Avraham. The term for like his, his deeds is Maase Avraham. So in Hebrew he's like saying, if you're B'nai Avraham, then do Maase Avraham, is the idea. Maybe we could look at a couple of things that Abraham did in this parasha. I mean, we've already been doing that, but let's, let's continue. Um, firstly, this is cool. In, in Genesis 14, this, 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 um, this figure kind of shows up out of nowhere. We don't really have any details about his background. His name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Pretty exotic sounding name. It means like uh, the righteous king. It has to do with being a righteous king. And he is a king of this uh, city-state called Salem, which most historians would say is Jerusalem. So he's like a really early king of Jerusalem. And he comes out and he's actually a priest of the one true God. And he blesses, he blesses Abram. Like Abram's the big guy in the faith, right? He's like the hero. And here's this king appearing and blessing Abram. And Hebrews points out that, you know, generally speaking, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's like the lesser person who's blessed by the greater. So Melchizedek is this massive figure, hey? And, uh, and of course, in the book of Hebrews, it goes on to say that Yeshua is a king like Melchizedek. Yeshua is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is why he can be a priest of God and not be descended from the tribe of Levi, not be from the Aaronic household. And, of course, we'll be going into that when we, when we look at Hebrews. But I really love the practical side to this. What, what does Melchizedek bring? He brings out some bread, he brings out some wine, and they like have this fellowship meal or something. Let me ask you, have you ever done that? Have you ever had a fellowship meal involving maybe some, some bread and some wine or something? We do that every Shabbat, don't we? You know, we, we have the cup and we bless him for the cup, for the fruit of the vine, and we, we break bread together and we bless him for that. Well, that is an ancient tradition going all the way back to our forefather Abraham. Isn't that cool? Like, that is part of an ancient tradition. And of course, there's some really, really... Uh, meaningful symbolism also about that. Maybe we can talk about that while we, while we do Oneg, while we have our fellowship meal together. Um, Abram's response is to cut this guy a tenth of all the stuff that he got from this, uh, the booty from this battle. It says he gave him a tenth of everything. This was, uh, interestingly enough, this whole concept was before the giving of the Torah, like generations before the giving of the Torah, um, Jacob also practiced that. So, you know, we could say that one of the, uh, one of the Masay Abraham, one of the deeds of Abraham, is to cut a tenth of our income and give it to the Almighty. So, you know, for Abraham's children in the faith, this is a good thing to practice. This is uh, something that, uh, that our forefather Abraham himself did. Here's another, here's another uh, area in which Abraham was exemplary. Uh, Abraham wasn't just a spiritual man. Abraham was also a very shrewd businessman. He did very well for himself. He was exceptionally wealthy by the end of his life. And he faced crises and like business. Um, his business was jeopardized on a level that most corporations will never face in their lifetime. And you know what? He, he came through it very well. So we have some things to, to learn about Abraham, Abraham on a business level. I'll, I'll share one with you here. On, on, in 1522... The king of Sodom wants to kind of strike up a business deal with Abraham here. Try and get some of the goods back. Oh, thank you, Genevieve. 1422. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is, what, this, is, uh, this is Abraham's response. I have sworn to Yahweh, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, that I'm not going to take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that's yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have, ta- have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Uh, then he lists his three covenant allies. So, here's something that I get out of this passage. On a business level, we can choose our investors and associates with care. We can ensure that our connections are with honorable corporations and businesses and individuals. It's, it's better, we learn from Abraham, to turn down a business deal than risk jeopardizing our corporate name through partnerships on any level. 
with uh, shady personages or organizations. And you know what? That's just smart on any level. You know, you don't want to get sucked into something that could be shady, that could besmirch your corporate name. And we see that in Abram's life. He was smart. <laughs> um, in two, two instances in Genesis 15, verses 2 and 8, Abram addresses the Creator as Adonai Yahweh. It's like my Master Yahweh, or Lord Yahweh. And so we see here, we see two things here. Firstly, God called, God called him, like Abram called God by name. He called him Yahweh. This is one of the Masay Avraham. This is something that he did. And you know what? That's why we call God by name in our congregation. That's why we pray to him as Yahweh. Because that's his original name. We also notice though, that he used titles when he referred to God. He called him Adonai. He called him my, my master, my Lord. So he didn't use God's name in a flip way, in a casual way. He, he, he used it respectfully. He, he, uh, he didn't just use God's name, but he incorporated titles of God into his prayer life also. Um, in the Hebrew course that I'm producing, I have several pages of Hebrew titles of God. And we're just going to go through them and learn them. They like really can enrich your prayer life. So that's something I'm looking forward to. That'd be kind of cool. Maybe I'll just share some of those with you sometime as a, as a sneak preview or something. <laughs> okay, here, here's, a, here's something interesting. And I want you to hear me out on this one, okay? Nobody rush up and strangle me before I'm done talking about this section, okay? I don't want anybody to throw anything at me until I say, okay, I'm done, I'm done saying this. I'm done my share. What do you think, okay? Okay. In 16 verse 2, Abram gets in, in trouble because he uh, listened to his wife. <laughs> Ladies, I'm not going to encourage your husbands not to listen to you, okay? Just let's, let, let's look at this for a second. Sarah cooks up this plan to make the promises of God come true. She's like, well, you know what? We can't have kids, so here's my servant. So why don't you have a baby with her? And we're going to make this thing happen, right? And, that, and, so, and, then, and then it says, and Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. And, you know, I mean, Ishmael was a great kid. They, he brought a lot of joy, but it also caused some serious problems down the road. Including, like, you know, on the news today, um, Islamic terrorists blowing themselves up who, you know, who claim they de descend from Ishmael. I mean, like, th th this is a problem that has continued to our very day, uh, to this very day, hey? Um, we, we, we actually see something similar with Adam. It, it says specifically in Genesis 3.17, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, Don't eat it. Then, like, cursed is the ground, etc. Okay. What I'm not saying here is men shouldn't listen to their wives. But what I am saying is, here are two instances of people who we look up to as our forefathers in the faith. And they had a weakness of not cultivating their own spiritual lives. Of not listening to God for themselves. Instead of going to God and hearing what God had to say, they just kind of did what their wives told them. Maybe, maybe they let their wives be the spiritual person in the family. Well, they just kind of like sat on the couch and watched football and had a beer or something. You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying is sometimes males have a tendency to just let women be the spiritual ones. And we see this in the life of Adam. We see this in the life of Abram. And uh, sometimes, you know what? Things don't go so very well when us guys check out of the picture. That's, that's, what, I, that's what I get out of this. So, uh, is anyone going to stone me for saying that? So guys, like, you know, you know what? Sometimes I'm tempted to do that. It's a very male thing. I just encourage you, like, be, be passionate about pursuing God, about developing your spiritual life. Be the, be, the, be the first to say, you know what? Let's pray about this. Don't let your wife be the one to say that. Be the one to say, let's pray about the situation right now. Yeah. Um, what is it? Is it, is it a matter of, like, Okay, here, here, here's, here's a misconception. You know, women sometimes can kind of be more naturally inclined to being spiritual. That's kind of like a, a conception out there, right? Women are the more naturally spiritual ones. And then guys are, you know, they like to go and work on the truck or whatever. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, it, it, it isn't true. Men are spiritual too, but sometimes males express their spirituality in different ways than females. Sometimes men express their spirituality in ways that don't seem as spiritual. That's some, this is something that I've observed. It's something I've observed in myself. It's something that Genevieve and I have had to like communicate through sometimes, you know? And, uh, but, you know, there's, there's, this, uh, there's this call here 
to develop our inner spirituality, to hear His voice for ourselves. Um, I've encountered the idea that, you know, because women are naturally more spiritual, um, they should be the ones who provide all the spiritual discernment in the home. They should be the ones to hear from God. And I disagree with that idea. I, I've seen that as an excuse that men have used to just put too much on their wives. Their wives are expected to be spiritually discerning and, uh, and to hear from God. And the husband can just kind of like, I don't know, just check out, you know. Um, I don't think it should be an either-or. Here's what, here's what I think. I think we as married couples, you know, we as, even as like, if you're an individual or with, with friends or whatever, we should be hearing from God together. It shouldn't just be, this is the person who hears from God. Hopefully, you know, hopefully married couples will be praying together. Hopefully they'll be discerning things together. Hopefully they'll be hearing the voice of God together. Hopefully it doesn't have to be an either-or, hey? I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a little picture here. Just, uh, you know, this whole thing of like sometimes when a, a woman is expected to be the spiritual one. I'll give you a picture of what that looks like on a soul level. Genevieve, do you want to help me with this? You can just stand there by the chair. Anybody notice the box in the back? My props box? Here, just stand right... Right there is great. Okay, it's kind of like, let's say that this here represents uh, the responsibility to hear from God in the area of your finances. Now, there are two, there are two sleeves in here, right? Ideally, this is a really big coat, and we should be able to both get into this coat. I actually, I just, I didn't think of doing this part, but let's see if it'll work. See, we can both get into the coat together, right? This is the way it's supposed to look. We wear the coat together, right? We carry it together. Unfortunately, often what happens is, the wife gets the coat dumped on her, like this. Okay? So let's say that's that one. Okay, let's say that this coat here represents, I don't know, let's say Torah study. This coat represents Torah study. You know, like initiating conversations about, about, uh, about spiritual realities, about things that really matter. And, you know, again, we should be wearing this coat together. We should both be initiating stuff like that. If you want to try to put it right on, sure. Unfortunately, sometimes the wife gets that coat dumped on her too, right? And then, um, now here's another coat. What does this one represent? <laughs> what? My hunting coat. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Like, uh, maybe this one represents spiritual discernment. Discerning maybe influences that are negative. Maybe that come into our children's lives. Or, or maybe some teacher on the internet. And... Uh, this is something that we males, we should be on guard for. We should be watching for. We want to be protectors of our home. Unfortunately, sometimes the wife gets the spiritual discernment coat dumped on her too. And uh, I don't know, here's another coat. I don't know what this one represents. But this one gets dumped on the wife too. And um, and then here's another spiritual coat. And this one gets... And, and before you know it, like, it's just... She's almost falling over. You know what I'm saying? Like, she wasn't made to bear that mantle. That's a mantle that can only be born together. And so... Uh, we want to take those coats. We want to take all those coats off. I want to take these coats off. Genevieve, and I just want to free her up to be who she was made to be. I want to free her up to just be free to, to be a worshiper, to praise Yahweh, to be able to just be, be rejoice and not feel those burdens, right? That, that's an analogy that we, we can learn from, from these guys, Adam and Abraham. So, thank you, Genevieve. Excuse me. Yeah. Maybe that, that'll help uh, picture that. <laughs> Here, here's another practical application from the life of Abraham. Uh, Genesis 17.21. If you just read this in English, you're going to miss the import of it. 17.21, he says, My covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Guess what the Hebrew word for season is there? It's a moed. That is correct. That is the term that is translated in other places, like Leviticus 23, the list of uh, the, the festivals that God has given His people as appointed times. I will visit you at... Uh, Sarah will have a baby next year at this moed. Now, we learned in Genesis 1 that from the very beginning, God created the, 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 the moon for uh, that lunar calendar. And that's the calendar that Israel has always used to know when to do festivals like Passover, like the, the Day of Trumpets, right? What that tells me is God visits people supernaturally. He, he, gives, 
He gives promises, not just randomly or on whatever day of the calendar, but He visits people on His appointed times. Very early on in the game, we see that this is one of the ways of God. Uh, we also see this in the book of Acts. Cornelius had an angelic visitation, and the result was his whole family was saved. He got to hear the gospel, and the Holy Spirit came upon them all. And do you know when that angel visited him? At the time of the afternoon offering. He was praying at the traditional Jewish hour of prayer in the afternoon. And the result was, he's, he, he was open spiritually, his senses were attuned, and he was able to receive that angelic visitation. I, I, I think this is something that we've really lost touch with in the body of Messiah. I mean, we've, be, we've so wanted to be free that we've just thrown away, I think we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. I think we've thrown away one of the ways of God. You know, we've thrown out God's calendar. We, we've ignored it. We, we don't study it. We're not in touch with it. You know, generally speaking, it's the body of Messiah. And, uh, you know, we pray for revival. We pray for the glory of God to come. These are good things. These are things that I pray for. But what I, something that I sense the Holy Spirit saying is, when you return to my ways, then I will return to you, and my glory will return to you. I supported the idea that the whole Torah is for all of God's people, and they are obligated to keep the whole Torah. You know, and they were quite critical of a specific organization that maybe was questioning that stance. And I just thought, you know what, like... I looked at, a, this was a couple times, and I was like, I don't know, do you keep the whole Torah? Like, you know, when you started keeping the Torah, you didn't run to the doctor and get circumcised? Maybe you should do that if you think the whole Torah applies to you, you know? I don't, I, a couple times I thought, you know, you're saying this, but you're not wearing tzitzit, and tzitzit represent keeping all of God's commandments. Why don't you start with tzitzit before you start criticizing other people? You know, so regardless of what stance we take, what I would say is, let's stay true to our stance. If you believe that the whole Torah is for you, then live according to the whole Torah. You know, in the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live according to the whole Torah. But don't be hypocritical and say that you support one law and then not practice one law in your own life. On a practical level, that would be my encouragement. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about identity and essence here for a couple of minutes. This will be something that spans both the Torah portion and our reading from 1 Peter. Avram in Genesis 14.13 is called Ha-Ivri, the Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew. He's, he's the first person to be called a Hebrew. And uh, this has two meanings. And both of them are relevant because we believe in Abraham's God. On a spiritual level, we're his, we're his kids, Right? So if he is called the Hebrew, then to some degree, maybe we're like Hebrew too or something, whatever Hebrew might mean. <laughs> Let's look at what it actually means. Uh, firstly, Hebrew means someone who is descended from Eber. Someone who speaks the language of, of Eber. Eber was around like uh, at the time of the Tower of Babel when all the languages were confused. So the people who spoke Eber's language were called Hebrews. And the language that they spoke was called Hebrew. Right? That's kind of the whole idea. If you're descended from Ever, and then you speak Ivrit, and you are Ivri. Those are, the, those are the Hebrew terms there. Here's the other thing that it means. To Avar is a verb. Like, you know, in Hebrew, the root of Hebrew, it means to cross over. Okay? To make a transition from one state to another state. To, like, change, to change location, shall we say. And, uh, like, on a practical level in the ancient world, it meant... Someone who's from the other side. Someone who is, like, foreign to some degree. An immigrant. It tells me something. It tells me that, like, part of this thing of being the spiritual descendants of Abram is being people who are crossing over from one place to another. People who are, like, immigrants, somehow. People who, uh, maybe are a little foreign to the norm at times. Whatever the norm is, right? So... That's, that's the first thing that we learn about Abram the Hebrew. Um, <laughs> the other thing is in Genesis 13:16, God says something that Baptists would find very frustrating. And you know, part of my family background is Baptist, so I'm allowed to say this. This is an internal joke. God says that you won't be able to count Abram's children. Now, Baptists, they love to count heads in the services, right? You have to make sure you have an exact tally of everyone in the service. And I have to admit, I really strayed from my Baptist roots in that area. In that area, like, I have no idea how many people come to our gatherings. 
Like, like I was at the ministerial on Wednesday, right? Here in Prince Albert. And uh, I met this wonderful man. He's, he's, he's like the, the new uh, bishop of the Anglican, Anglican thing in this area. And he asked so many people in my congregation. And I was like, oh shoot. I hate it when people ask me this. I just gave him this blank look and I'm like, um, five or six families? <laughs> I don't know how many people are in our congregation. I don't, I don't count heads, right? And here's the thing. You couldn't count Abraham's children either. Like, it's like God was saying, Abram, your, your, your children are not going to be quantifiable. However, will they be qualifiable? I think, they, I, I think that they, you could say they will be qualifiable. People who are people of faith. People who are hearing God, just like Abraham did. People who are doing the stuff that he did. They are his children. Is that quantifiable? No, that's more qualifiable. Here's something else, though, that that tells us. If you can't count all of Abram's children through Isaac, like covenant people, that means there's more to Abraham's children than just the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people are quantifiable. They show up on censuses. You can say, well, there are roughly this many Jewish people in Israel, and there are roughly this many Jewish people in the Bible world. Or that tells me this thing is bigger than just the quantifiable Jewish people. Yeah. So there, those are some practical applications of this ancient prediction as, they, as they work, it works out today. Well, let's, let's uh, continue looking at, looking at this First Peter passage for about eight minutes, I would say, and we'll, we'll wrap up around 12.30, okay? Okay, First Peter, in uh, chapter 2, he's writing to a lot of believers from the nations. They're like ex-pagans. Like, a couple of years before he, they got this letter, they were like drinking blood from skulls and engaging in orgies and doing some like really bad stuff, right? And worshipping like all kinds of crazy gods. And, uh, and then like this preacher came to town, Paul, and, uh, and his companion Barnabas, and they started talking about Yeshua, and how he came to like save the world, and bring people to the real God. And like these people were like, this is for real. And they really grabbed it, right? And they became believers in Yeshua. They started worshipping the, the God of Israel. And uh, th- these are the people that Simon Peter was writing this letter to. And when you read it in the context of whom he was writing to, like it really comes alive. Because he calls them he calls them some specific things in a chapter two. Uh, firstly, he calls them in verse starting in verse nine. First Peter two verse nine, he calls them actually I'm not going to list these in order, but he calls them a holy nation. A goy kadosh. So according to First Peter two, believers are not a religion. They are not a denomination. Believers are a nation. We're a nation. We're a holy nation. Yeah. In Genesis 10, we learn that a nation is qualified by several things. A common ethnicity, a common language, and a common homeland or country. Now let me ask you, as believers in the God of Israel, as people who have been included in the holy nation, which of course is Israel... What is our common, shall we say, ethnicity? I'm not talking on a physical, like, DNA level, right? Maybe, maybe we're related to the Jewish people. Let's just put it that way, okay? Maybe there are relatives. If you're not Jewish, some of us here are ethnically Jewish. Um, what about a common language? What's our common language? That which is closest to our heart as believers. Could it be Hebrew? Maybe. I think it is. Um, how about a common homeland or country? What might that be? What did we read in Genesis 12? I'm going to give you something forever. You and your descendants. The land of Canaan. Could it be that that is like the, the center of our faith life? I mean, some of us have been there. Linda, you, you were there just recently. And you know, you, 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 for so many people, they go to Israel for the first time and they feel such a spiritual connection. It's like you come home. It's like, wow, this is my homeland and I didn't even know that. I had never, like, I didn't even know it until I, I got there, you know? So, there's so many people feel that and maybe that's the idea there. Uh, he also calls these believers, uh, Mamlachet Kohanim, a kingdom of priests. That's just cool. Stop and think about this for a second. You're a priest. So, ask yourself, you know, with this new position of yours, what's your job description? What does it look like to be a priest? What does a priest do? Because you're part of a kingdom of priests. 
yeah, maybe we can discover that one together too as we, as we continue to grow as a congregation. Um, he also called them a really special term. In Hebrew, it's like amsgula. Everybody say amsgula. And, uh, and here it's translated as like a people for his possession, but it means like your precious possession. It means like your special treasure. So Peter says like, you are God's special treasure. You are a precious possession to him. You're his amsgula. Now here's the interesting thing. These are all terms that God used in reference to Israel in Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 and 6. What does that tell us? Does it tell us that believers from the nations have replaced Israel? That they've superseded Israel? I don't think so. I don't think that idea holds water when we read Romans 9 to 11. But maybe what it does tell us is that believers are included in Israel. They have become part of the holy nation. They've become part of the kingdom of priests. They've become part of that special treasure. And no, so we, we as the body of Christ can remember this fact. Just as much as you're special to God, Israel is special to God. You do not replace Israel, you are included. Yeah. So that, that is a, that is very, a very meaningful aspect of what Peter wrote here. I'll just point out a couple things in brief here also, a couple Hebrew insights in First Peter. Uh, Peter was a Jew, he was a traditional Jew. Hebrew is his heart language. You can totally tell when he, when he expresses himself in this letter. So I'll just point out a couple things that maybe would otherwise escape our notice. Um, in 1 Peter, okay, the very beginning of his letter, in chapter 1, verse 3, he opens his letter by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Master Yeshua the Messiah. Th- that is like, it's cool because it's a classic Jewish way of praying. You open by saying, blessed be Him. And then you describe His attributes. You list His actions. Blessed be Him who has... And then uh, you list some of the things He does. And that's exactly what He does here. Interestingly enough, um, two of the very first things He mentions is the fatherhood concept and uh, the power of God in raising Yeshua from the dead. And when you look at the, like the core of the synagogue service, the very most important traditional Jewish prayer that was prayed by Peter 2,000 years ago, and that is still prayed today, two of the very first like, areas of prayer that are mentioned are like fathers, a vote, and the power of God in resurrection, Devorah. It's just cool that like, you can totally hear Peter being in touch with this as he, as he opens his letter. Um, in chapter 1, verse 15, he references God as the Holy One, Hakadosh. In, uh, in early rabbinic literature, he's often called Hakadosh Baruch Hu, uh, the Holy One, blessed is He. I just, I just love that term. You know, referring to God as the Holy One, blessed is He. <laughs> blessed is He. Um, in chapter 1, verse 11, we discover that the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, all of these prophets of Israel in ancient times, there was a spirit speaking through them. And you know whose spirit it was? It was the spirit of Messiah. Messiah's spirit around, was around like 3,000, 4,000 years ago. And you know what? There's a spirit in you. And it's that exact same spirit. It's the spirit of Messiah speaking through you when you let him. And let me ask you, who does the spirit of Messiah talk about? He talks about Messiah. Yeah, the prophets prophesied about Messiah by the spirit of Messiah. And so when we, when we get into the spirit of Messiah, when we let him like flow through us. We're just going to be a Messiah-centered people. It's, it's like unavoidable. <laughs> um, chapter 1, verse 15, he also, he also encourages us to be holy in all our behavior. Behavior is like our physical lifestyle, hey? I wonder if that would include stuff like our diet, how we dress, how we conduct business, how we spend recreational time. I don't know. Do you think maybe Peter viewed the Bible that he and his rabbi Jesus read for their whole lives? Do you think maybe he, he viewed the Torah as maybe the standard of what that practical lifestyle holiness could look like in terms of like diet, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, good chance. I, I think so. Here, I'll, I'll finish with this, uh, with this insight. It's, a, it's in the very last verse. In 1 Peter 2.25, he gives a really special title of, for Messiah. He says that uh, you, were, you were continually straying like sheep. You know, like you were getting distracted, you were wandering off, you were going all over the place. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. And uh, 
I don't know, maybe some of us don't identify very well with the concept of a guardian. Like, what, well, a legal guardian, you know? Like, but uh, the, uh, I'll give you the underlying Hebrew term here. The Hebrew term is mashgiach. Can we all say mashgiach? I don't know, maybe that doesn't sound like a very like warm tone. I mean, out of the Hebrew words that I know, that one sounds a little out there, you know? Mashgiach. But that's like the idea. Now here's the cool thing. Uh, mashgiach is the word that continues to be used in the Jewish world today. And it does have the connotation of like an overseer or a supervisor, but it also has the connotation of like a spiritual guide. Um, in, in a Jewish college, for instance, in a yeshiva, you have, a, you have someone, and his, uh, his official job description is as a mashgiach ruchani. A mashgiach ruchani. That means like a spiritual mashgiach, a, a spiritual guide. And uh, this guy's whole job is like just to engage with students, help them grow spiritually, be there for them when they need it, someone to talk to, someone to give wise counsel. That's the idea of a mashgiach ruchani, right? And that's Yeshua. That's, that's who He is to us. So I wanted to share that with you, because it, it's, it's a very meaningful term. Like it, it's one that, from all appearances, Simon Peter coins in reference to Messiah. And it also is a very meaningful Jewish term. In fact, maybe we can't even understand that term outside of that Jewish context. So, I'm thankful that we have a Messiah who's engaged in our life, who has called us to follow Him, who is present with us today. Um, wow, hey, it's like that journey that began thousands of years ago. It's still happening. We can be part of that journey. We are part of that journey. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.